Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Podcast Today, which is our Thursday podcast and usually roundtable. We are going to focus on a book that we think is especially important and an author that we always want to hear from, and that is David Korn who has written a new, incredibly well-timed book called American Psychosis. What's the subtitle, David? A Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. And that's why you need to buy this book, folks, because this is, I think, uh, curative to the general notion that somehow it's all about Donald Trump. Somehow it's all about something that's happened in the past few years. And you go all the way back to the middle of the 19th century and the know-nothings, which I think is as good a place as I can imagine to begin, since, as you point out, when you get back into our era and Sarah Palin and so forth, you go full circle and we're back to our own generation of know-nothings. What is it that led you to do this deep dive? A little over a year ago, I was just wondering about the Republican relationship with far-right fanaticism. There there are histories of the Republican Party, there are histories of the conservative movement. And I went looking and I saw that nobody had ever really done a history, a political history, with this lens, with this filter. And I guess, be the change you want to be, write the book you want to write. (laughs) Or write the book that you want to read, I should say. To me, it's highly important to understand the current moment. To do that, you have to understand the past. And the book does go back to the 1850s and the know-nothings being uh, involved with the formation of the Republican Party, but really picks up after World War II. And it's a history for the last 70 years, seven decades, of the GOP relationship with extremism, which could be bigotry, racism, but often paranoia and conspiracy theory. I found that Donald Trump was not an aberration. He was a culmination, a continuation, an escalation of this of this relationship that's long been part of the GOP DNA. 
It has waxed and it has waned, but the party has always forged a relationship with the far right and extremists, and it has fed and fueled their resentments and hatreds and sought to capitalize on it. Trump just did it in a more obvious way, bigger, bolder, better, and it seems something new, but he was really working off a foundation that had been established for for decades. And even Republicans who we like to think of as moderate, reasonable, rational people, say Mitt Romney, the George Bushes, even if we don't like their policies, if you're a liberal and you're a Democrat, they had engaged in this as well. And so not to the extent that Trump did, but the party has always needed what they used to call the kooks on their side. And they've always kowtowed and capitalized off, off the kooks. So this ends up being a history of what you could call the dark side of the Republican Party that's always been there, that has not been acknowledged by the party, and often un- undercovered by the media and historians. The last thing I'll say about this is that when I started this book over a year ago, I really had no expectation that it would be as timely and relevant as it feels right now as we're discussing the hold MAGA extremism has on the Republican Party and whether Donald Trump is or isn't leading the Republicans and if he has his way, the nation towards fascism or semi-fascism. You go back and you look and you see hiding in sight this pattern of this relationship between the party and extremism. And it go, wow, this really explains a lot of how we got to where we are today and shows this is deeply rooted within the party. And so if you're thinking about what to do about it or how the country should respond to this, that's really important to know. It's not just, you know, a one-off because of this one guy. It's been there for a long time. And that changes how you think about solutions and possible responses to the Republican Party love affair with QAnon, extremism, Christian nationalism, MAGA extremism, uh, racial bigotry, whatever you want to call it. One of the reasons it resonated with me, one of the reasons it's so timely, obviously, if you, you know, just been watching the news in the past few days and you watched the J.D. Vance rally in, in Ohio and you saw the sort of underlying fascism and you listened to some of the language and, and the seeming ever more extremist or the ever greater embrace of extremism, QAnon and so forth, you would think this was all there. But, you know, something else triggered something in me in the past few days, and I don't know if you saw it, but I saw it somewhere on Twitter. I saw a quote or a little interview with uh, General Michael Flynn. And General Michael Flynn is saying the COVID was there, was a part of a plan to replace our DNA. And the next thing you know, they're going to replace our body parts with little microchips and and I was, you know, you watch this and you go, holy fuck, this guy is absolutely out of his mind. And then I thought, wait a minute, I've seen this movie before. And I thought back distant past, which is to say my childhood. And we had a next door neighbor who was a Republican. And he would preach the dangers of fluoridization of putting fluoride in the water, and mm-hmm. that this was a communist plot. And uh, 
I remember also once going to this guy's house on Halloween, being a little liberal Jewish boy in New Jersey with an orange UNICEF carton. Oh, bad move. Bad I, know move. Where the, <laughs> I know where this is going, but tell our listeners. Yeah, but, but you know, and I, and I was like, you know, trick or treat for UNICEF. And he was like, commies, get away from, you know, and he was a direct descendant of Joe McCarthy the John Birch Society, of which he was a member. And, you know, that was tied to Barry Goldwater at the time. And that leads you to Newt Gingrich. It leads you to the Tea Party. It leads you to the Sarah Palins and the and the Donald Trumps. It's all of a piece. And so some of the stuff that seems new is actually old. To me, one of the amazing things about doing this book was I I saw the pattern that you're describing. It seems so obvious once you look for it because it's hiding in plain sight. Half the book I lived through and then I and I reported on. I started, you know, reporting on Washington, you know, in the 80s. So a lot of things in the book like, oh yeah, I knew that at the time, but I didn't connect the dots. And the pattern of the Republican Party embracing people who have the most hateful and bizarre and bonkers ideas and legitimizing and validating them goes back, you know, I pick up the story mainly with McCarthy, who was a senator from Wisconsin, started McCarthyism, as our listeners will know. But he went on the Senate floor in 1951, and he said there was a cabal that was in charge of the U.S. government that was secretly plotting to destroy the United States from within, so that the Soviets could take over America. And the person in charge of this plot was George C. Marshall, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time. He'd been Army Chief of Staff during World War II, helped win the war, then he helped save Europe with the Marshall Plan, and he was Secretary of State, and then Truman made him Secretary of Defense. So this is very close to QAnon, admittedly without baby eating and sex trafficking, but is the same essence that there's a group of secret evildoers and elite that are not just wrong. It's not that Marshall had the wrong policies. He wasn't tough enough on the Soviets and we should be doing this or that, but they were conspiring against the United States to weaken and destroy it, annihilate it from within. And McCarthy was embraced by the Republican Party. One of the chapters of my book, early chapters start with the story in 1952, Eisenhower running for president the first time as a Republican, and McCarthy's running for re-election. They're campaigning together in Wisconsin. And Eisenhower hated McCarthy. George Marshall was a dear friend of his and a comrade from the war. They kind of won the war together. And he knew that McCarthy was a liar and a scoundrel. And he asked a junior speechwriter. George Marshall was actually his boss. Yes, was he he picked Eisenhower to be the commander of the D-Day forces, right? He asked the junior speechwriter to draft a paragraph that would attack McCarthy, not by name, defend Marshall by name, and just assail the, you know, this, this, this culture of baseless accusations that are as a threat to freedom. And he was going to do this while they were campaigning together at a big rally at Marquette University in Milwaukee, where McCarthy had graduated both undergrad and and law school. This would have been a pretty gutsy move. 
there are other top Republicans on the campaign train as they're going, chugging along through Wisconsin, stopping at, you know, Green Bay and other cities, Madison, wherever. Um, and they see the draft of the speech and they have what you might call conniptions. And this includes the, the Republican governor of Wisconsin. It includes Sherman Adams, the Republican governor of New Hampshire, who was Eisenhower's top aide, and the head of the Republican Party, the RNC, who's on the train. And they basically say, you can't do this. It may lose us Wisconsin. And more importantly, Joe McCarthy is bringing millions of Catholic voters who have been mostly Democratic into the Republican Party with his anti-communism. So this could really split the party in two. And Eisenhower, this brave war hero, says, okay, take it out. So he gives a speech in which the Milwaukee Journal, after it says, it was a light version of McCarthyism. He echoed McCarthy rather than attacking him. And so in some ways, you know, you, you may want to call this even the original sin of the modern GOP. Eventually, half the Republican senators voted to censure McCarthy when he went too far and started attacking the army a few years later. But by that point in time, he had established a strong foothold with McCarthyism, which continued after McCarthy within the Republican Party. The John Birch Society that you mentioned took this to a new level of paranoia and craziness, and they were basically embraced by Barry Goldwater for the 64 campaign because he wanted them knocking on doors, giving him money, and being the foot soldiers for his campaign. Very much like John Boehner and the Tea Party a couple decades later. So this stuff has always, always been there. And Donald Trump, as he's done a couple of days ago, embracing QAnon is not that much different than Barry Goldwater getting out there and defending the John Birch Society. It's always, always been there. And so going back, you know, I saw, I saw this pattern and I said, yeah, if you want to understand why we're at this point we are, why the Republican Party is at this point, it's not that Trump came in and did something different and everyone fell for it. He continued a longstanding tried and true practice of the Republican Party, and you can't flip a switch and go back to the mythical days of the good old GOP, because in actuality, they never existed. Yeah, absolutely right. And what you just described there has two components. One is the rise of the extremists. The other is the tolerance of the party establishment for the extremists, their desire to accommodate them because they think it's the path to victory. And it's, you know, it could be Eisenhower. It certainly, I'm going to come back to Nixon and Reagan in a minute, but they, they were involved. But even, you know, genteel George H.W. Bush and Lee Atwater or the Bushes and Donald Trump, you know, they did not condemn him, even if they didn't support him. This is a, a subtext. But there's another subtext in the, in the, in the book and in this story that's, that also seems very important. And that is, Underlying all of this is racism, anti-Semitism, and misogyny. And, and this has all been there from the beginning. You know, the Joe McCarthy attacks on the globalists, the internationalists, very tied up in the Rosenbergs and globalists and, and you know, internationalists has always been code for Jews, and it remains that to this day. Racism has been there. You talk about it. Nixon you know, essentially ran a campaign that tapped into it. Reagan 
did in in other kinds of ways and 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 there've been subtexts of it throughout including the in the Dukakis campaign and uh, you know the, the campaign against Dukakis and the Willie Horton thing and and onward and similarly even the in terms of the anti-woman attitudes you know you had the sort of Phyllis Schlafly phenomenon the pushback on feminism the pushback on the ERA and so forth and this is kind of a trinity at the center of the Republican Party for, you know, 70 years now, which is to say racism, anti-Semitism, and anti-woman attitudes. It is. And, you know, you could talk about it from, you know, a policy point of view um, in terms of being opposed to civil rights legislation and reproductive rights and all that. The lens, you know, that I'm looking at is this alliance that the party has nurtured with extremists, right? The, some of the, the kookiest and craziest and most hateful people out there and often promoters of conspiracy theories and paranoia. And you can you know, throw a dart at the timeline of the last 70 years for the Republican Party and wherever it lands, there is something going on that falls into this category. So you could look at Ronald Reagan, patron saint of the Republican Party. A lot of people still think very highly of him. In the late 70s, when he was running for president, we saw the rise of the new right and the religious right. And a lot of what they were doing was demonizing and dehumanizing their political opponents. They were calling Democrats, liberals, enemies to the country, sort of like what we see today, and that they wanted to destroy Christianity and destroy the country. And they were very apocalyptic. A Democrat gets elected in 1980, Christianity and freedom will be gone in four years, eight years, 10 years. They never seem to agree exactly on how many years it would take them to destroy the country. And a group that led the way that people might remember was the moral majority led by Jerry Fowell. And Fowell, Fowell was out there saying that gay Gay people wanted to kill Americans. I mean, he literally said this. And there are leaders of the moral majority who said publicly that they believed if you practiced homosexuality, you could be put to death under God's law. You know, encouraging violence, encouraging hate. And Ronald Reagan embraced Falwell and the moral majority and said that they were uplifting the spiritual center of America. And he ended up beating Jimmy Carter in the 1980 election. And one reason he did was because the evangelical vote, which two thirds had gone for Carter in 76, flipped to Reagan two thirds in 1980. And Lou Harris, a very important pollster at the day, said that without that flip, without Reagan reaching out and making an alliance with the Christian nationalists and fundamentalists of the day, hate mongers, he would have lost. So again and again, you see Republicans, sometimes they believe the extremist views that they're encouraging. Other times they're just exploiting it. Mitt Romney, when he ran in 2011 during the Tea Party era, he moved to the right on policy because that's where the Republican Party was, even though he once called himself a progressive Republican when he was governor of Massachusetts. But he went after Donald Trump's endorsement and literally hugged him 
when Donald Trump endorsed him. And at this point in time, Trump was the number one champion of the racist birther conspiracy theory. It died down. He brought it back. It made him a hero on the right. And it wasn't that Mitt Romney, he certainly knew better, believed or advocated birtherism. But here he was putting his good housekeeping seal of approval on Trump and by welcoming him into the Republican world by accepting his endorsement, saying it was important, validating him, and sending a signal to Republicans and conspiracy theorists that Donald Trump was a serious person and should be listened to when he was a nutbag promoting a racist notion. So even Mitt Romney, who would not promote that himself, was still authenticating this element within the Republican Party to get elected. Again, I just want to emphasize, this is a really important book because too many people think, oh, well, you know, Donald Trump is going to get convicted of this or that. He's not going to run. This is going to be over. We'll be on to a new chapter. But if you read your book, it makes it absolutely clear that this is three quarters of a century long, some aspects of it longer. You know, I find this whole eating baby thing and, and you know, that, that whole focus, that goes back to sort of the Middle Ages and blood libels against the Jews, you know, and Christian stealing Christian babies and stuff like this. But it's been going on for three quarters of a century. And anybody who's aware of the history knows McCarthy was bad, knows, you know, Falwell was bad, understands what the different manifestations of racism were in all of this or homophobia. But the real question is, you know, you look at it today, you see Trump essentially betraying the country, committing crimes, all these people supporting him. You see a much more overtly fascist subtext, the one-finger salutes, the embrace of QAnon and conspiracy theories. And the question is, having studied it, do you think it's metastasizing? Do you think it's worse now um, than, it, than it has been over this period? And, and if so, why? You know, that's, it's, it's a very hard thing to measure. And my book has a, a chapter that does a brief his, history of conspiracy theory and American politics that was true for all political parties on, on, on the right and the left. And, you know, there was for a long time a lot of anti-Catholicism that read all these conspiracy theories that the um, Pope was working through the Democratic Party to take over the United States. And at one point in one of the elections, people who, who were promoting this theory passed out pictures of the Holland Tunnel being built at the, at the time, whatever year this was. And, but, it, but they claimed a secret tunnel was being built that the Pope could send troops through, the Vatican could send their troops through in order to take over America. That's a hell of a long tunnel, right? So there's always been you know, this crazy, you know, elements of craziness in American politics on both sides. And McCarthyism was certainly a, a, a fevered panic that caused a lot of damage in, for, for, to the American system and to individual Americans 
in the 1950s. But if you go back, you know, less in time, you know, you start, say, in the 90s, and you pick it up with Newt Ginrich, who encouraged the Republican Party to see its fight with the Democrats as another civil war. You know, his chief consultant said they had to behave like the Viet Cong, and Newt, his political action committee, distributed lists of words Republicans should use when attacking Democrats. And they were traitor, treasonous, radical, anti-America, anti-flag, anti-children. It was all about dehumanizing and demonizing Democrats. These weren't policy disputes. They were enemies trying to destroy the country, echoing a lot that was being said by Rush Limbaugh to the Republican base at the time. And then you start, you start moving forward from there and, you know, you, you see Sarah Palin in 2008 attacking Barack Obama as being a supporter of terrorists. And at, their, at, his, at her rallies, you know, people shouting, traitor, commie, kill him, off with his head. And I mean, I covered those rallies and all the political reporters who were there had never seen such visceral hatred at a presidential campaign rally. It seemed to be something new and different at the time. A year or two later, we have the Tea Party. And the essence of the Tea Party that you heard at their rallies was that Barack Obama was a secret socialist Muslim born in Kenya who wanted to destroy the American economy so he could impose a totalitarian dictatorship. That's what they believed. And you could hear it every night on Fox with Glenn Beck who said concentration camps, death panels, and John Boehner, Sarah Palin, other prominent Republicans were appearing on his show and basically saying to the base, this guy is legitimate. You should listen to what he has to say, even though it was complete, crazy conspiracism. And what I see in this particular time period is the further and further ongoing radicalization of the Republican base. You know, from saying Bill Clinton's not a normal human being, which is what Newt Gingrich said, to the Tea Party saying that Barack Obama has this diabolical plan to take over the country by destroying the economy, and other sorts of craziness that was coming on. You know that that you're, that the, the banks own individuals. I mean, the Tea Party was just full of crap, and, but yet it was in, endorsed and embraced by by the Republican Party, and so. Donald Trump comes along in 2015, and the base has been fed this red meat, this demonizing, dehumanizing red meat for decades. And then you have Bobby Jindal and Chris Christie arguing about who has the better plans for the corporate tax rate or something like that, who's better in housing, Jeb Bush is better in education. I mean, and Donald Trump comes along and says, screw that. I'm going to give you Alex Jones. I'm going to tell you, at a rally, you know, someone stood up and said, we got to get rid of all the Muslims. And he says, you know, people say that. We're going to look at that. And, and so he realizes the base has been so radicalized, he's just going to give them the bloodiest red meat that they've ever seen. And they're not going to want to listen to Lindsey Graham talk to, I don't know, Rick Perry about housing policy. So I think in that way, you know, you asked if it's a metastasized. I think it got more intense. I think the Republican Party kept throwing the swill out 
thinking they could control things. John Boehner learned that he couldn't, and he left the speakership before there was a Tea Party mutiny against him. And by the time Trump came along, the base was just too far gone to the extent that even after January 6th, you had Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy believe we got him now, right? This, you went too far. We can drum him out of the party. And they give these speeches attacking Trump for inciting a violent attack on the U.S. government. And that's the last we ever hear of them on this subject, because they understand the base is not moving. The base is in support of QAnoners, Christian nationalists, neo-Nazis ransacking the Congress. And Kevin McCarthy runs down to Mar-a-Lago, poses and pictures with Trump and smiles. He, you know, he doesn't want to get in the way of fundraising for the Republican Party. And Mitch McConnell never says anything else uh, about how terrible Donald Trump is. And even says a few weeks later that if Trump gets the nomination in 2024, he'll be right by his side. So I do think it's, you know, the, it's, it's a virus. And it has waxed and waned over the years. But now it's become basically a, pand- a political pandemic within the Republican Party. And no presidential candidate, president on the Republican side or any side, has ever done anything in modern times as crazy and as extreme as embracing QAnon, which Trump fully did after playing footsie with it for several years. And again, I just want to emphasize book is American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. And it's important, not just because it's fascinating or well-written or lively, which it's all those things, but it's important because if you make the mistake of thinking Donald Trump is an aberration and when he goes, this will go, you're making a profound mistake. Because what David reveals is that in the DNA of the modern Republican Party for the better part of a century have been all of the elements you see today. And they have progressed somewhat, and they're more disturbing in certain ways, but you can follow them to where they are, and you can project them from here onward. And you know there is every sign that whomever succeeds Donald Trump, to the extent that happens, is going to carry many of these things forward. And if you don't believe it, look at Ron DeSantis or look at Greg Abbott or look at Christy Nome or look, look at the other can- candidates who are currently leaders within the party. It's essential reading. I congratulate you on the book and I uh, hope everybody goes out and gets it. And I also hope you understand that's why we did a special episode here. We did not do our normal break. So look, Go become a member. Go to gsrnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member. We'd like you to do that to support more of this. And with some luck, David will be back because he's he's been back a bunch of times and we think he's an essential voice. And congratulations again, David. Thanks to you. Thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll be back uh, with our regular podcasts, uh, you know, throughout each week. Please join us then. Bye-bye.